couple years ago, a, a video went viral on social media of a courtroom scene. No, there was no one attacked. There was no disorderly conduct in the courtroom. Rather, the video's popularity was due to the shocking mercy displayed by the brother of the victim to the offender. Perhaps you remember Brant Jean, the brother of Botham Jean, who was fatally shot by Amber Geiger, an off-duty police officer in Dallas who thought she was in her own apartment and mistook Botham Jean for a burglar. He, she shot him to death. Geiger was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And at the sentencing, Botham's brother Brant was given the opportunity to make a victim impact statement, and he addressed Amber directly. He said this, if you are truly sorry, I can speak for myself. I forgive. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I presently want the best for you. I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. And then he turned to the judge and said, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug? And it was just this powerful and unnatural moment in the courtroom. We're not used to seeing family members of victims publicly offer mercy and forgiveness to the offender, are we? This thing just doesn't happen. Brant Jean's offer of forgiveness to Amber Geiger was a shocking display of mercy that went viral precisely because of its unnaturalness. A supernatural work of grace in his heart enabled him to do that. Friends, today in the book of Genesis, we see a similarly shocking offer of forgiveness. Only in this case, it's not by the family member of the victim, but by the victim himself offering mercy to the family members who had wronged him and sold him into slavery. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, it's on page 35 of the Bible underneath your seats if you need it. Friends, when we left off last week, Joseph, the son of Jacob, had been raised, as it were, from death to life. Remember that? God had lifted him up out of the pit and exalted him to a position of authority in Egypt so that he might bless the nations. Remember that the reason that Pharaoh installed Joseph to this position of authority was that Joseph had rightly interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. These two dreams that Pharaoh had that were, were really about seven years of plenty and abundance followed by seven years of severe famine. And Joseph's suggestion to Pharaoh was that there should be wise management of that abundant time in the first seven years so that Egypt might survive and thrive in the second seven years. Pharaoh loved the idea and he appointed Joseph to be the vizier, the second in command of Egypt to manage the very program that he had proposed. Then notice at the end of chapter 41, just notice how the chapter ends, the last part of the last verse. And the famine was severe over all the earth. Now that last tidbit to the, is important to the story. This, this famine that's going on in Egypt is not a local drought. It's a global event. 
And because of that fact, the famine reached even up into Canaan. And that's where the story picks up again in chapter 42. The, the curtain closes and it rises again and we're back in Canaan. Let's read together the first several verses of Genesis 42. Our text today is actually four chapters, verses, or excuse me, chapters 42 to 45. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. For the famine in the land, uh, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers. And he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, 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 my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. I roll. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I will fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and, and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words shall be verified and you shall not die. I think we're going to stop there for now. Friends, these chapters of our text this morning are clearly heading to the climax of the story, aren't they? Everything in Joseph's life has been building and building until now, right? This part of the story that we're going to cover today is full of drama. It's full of intrigue and suspense. And of course, Joseph is going to release that tension finally in chapter 45 by revealing his identity and re reconciling with his brothers. Let me give you the main idea of the text that I hope you'll see very clearly throughout uh, this passage. It's the main idea of the sermon. Here it is. At the center of God's plan to rescue the world is the reconciliation of a family. At the center of God's plan to rescue the world is the reconciliation of a family. I think we're going to see that especially as we get closer to chapter 45. Two points this morning. In chapters 42 to 44, which are obviously the bulk of, the, of our text this morning, number one, severe kindness leads to repentance. 
Number two, gracious sovereignty leads to forgiveness. Severe kindness leads to repentance and gracious sovereignty leads to forgiveness. Friends, I pray that much more than a happy ending type of story, much more than even just a a wonderful story of reconciliation, this text might actually move our hearts to love even more the love of God and mercy of God in Christ to us. That God and his kindness to us has forgiven us and reconciled us to himself and then in turn reconciled us to each other in the family of God. And that we as Christians above all people ought to be known to display that very type of mercy that we have found in Christ. Number one, severe kindness leads to repentance. What we saw in the first five verses, the famine had become so great in Canaan that Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to to buy grain in order to save their lives. Now, I'm pretty confident that none of us have ever encountered a food or resources shortage quite like this. Not even the great toilet paper outage of 2020 is as bad as this. So from the beginning, we see a severe providence of the Lord right? A famine that he had sent. He was moving Jacob's family, Joseph's brothers toward him in Egypt through the famine. The Lord is using suffering in this family's life, I think, to humble them and to draw them to himself. But notice, notice in verse four, who Jacob did not send. That's right. He did not send Benjamin. It appears that Benjamin had replaced Joseph as Jacob's favorite son. He was the the boy born as Rachel, his beloved wife, died. He's his new favorite. But I think there's another reason that Jacob didn't send Benjamin. Friends, I think it's clear from the text that Jacob did not trust his sons. Even though Jacob at this point was ignorant about his son's crime against Joseph, he knew their character, right? Think about it. Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi led the slaughter of unsuspecting Shechemites years before. Reuben, the firstborn, maybe he's good. No, he slept with one of his father's concubines. Oh, Judah, maybe he's the the paragon of righteousness. No, he had a child by his daughter-in-law whom he slept with thinking she was a prostitute. Jacob had good reasons not to trust his sons with Benjamin. These brothers were in desperate need of God's transforming power. Well, when they arrived in Egypt, God and his providence placed them right before their brother Joseph, who was overseeing the grain distribution. And notice what they did. Notice what they did according to verse six. What did they do? They bowed down. And verse nine says that Joseph knew exactly the significance of this. He remembered his dreams. He remembered the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. Remember remember that? And the sun, moon, and stars in his dream that bowed down to him. In Genesis 37, it's really fascinating that the word bowing down is mentioned three times in his dream and the interpretation. And in these chapters today, we're going to see Joseph's brothers bow to him three times. God's word is true. Can you even imagine at this point what is happening inside Joseph's heart and mind? As he sees these brothers, these ones who had betrayed him, Remember, Joseph had named his oldest son Manasseh, which meant forgets, basically. God has caused me to forget my former trouble. But now the memories flood back in as, in an instant as the source of his pain bow before him. What would you have done? Seriously, what would you have wanted to do? 
Joseph had the power to do whatever he wanted to do in this moment. He had unlimited authority. He could have condemned them to slavery. He could have imprisoned them. He could have killed them. He could have killed them slowly, right? With torture. He done whatever. But what we're going to see is instead of being filled with retribution, a la Simeon and Levi years before, Joseph's fundamental disposition toward his brothers is one of love. He could have revealed who he was right then, but he restrained himself. And I think he displays a remarkable wisdom. And what he does is, is he hatches a series of tests that would reveal whether or not his brothers were the same guys who sold him into slavery. Have they changed or are they the same guys? You know, friend, maybe you have someone in your life with whom you'd love to reconcile, but you know you can't reconcile with them as long as that person doesn't change. There's just too much deceit in the past. There's too much sin. There's too much baggage. Unless the person repents, reconciliation isn't possible. I think that's what's going on here with Joseph. Unless the brothers are different, reconciliation will remain a pipe dream. So to test his brothers, what does he do? He speaks harshly toward them and he accuses them of being spies. He seems to be testing their integrity. How are they going to react? When the brothers mentioned their father and Benjamin, that they were alive, Joseph knew that the only way that he could really see if his brothers had changed was to get them to bring Benjamin down with them. And of course, I'm sure he desperately wanted to see Benjamin. Well, what was Joseph's plan? His plan was to send one of them back to Canaan while the, rem the rest remained in Egypt. All right? He, he was going to keep all of them in, you know, he's going to keep all of them in, in, in custody and send one back. Well, after three days of, of custody, of imprisonment of his brothers, Joseph changes his mind. He changes the plan. And instead, he released all but one of them to go and get Benjamin. Friends, I think as we're, we're moving through this text, and we're going to move through it at a rapid pace, we're moving through a lot of scripture this morning, I think what you need to see is, is that these tests are remarkable. Why? Because they recreate in part the scenarios that Joseph's brothers, of Joseph's brothers' betrayal of him. Would these brothers care enough about a brother languishing in Egypt? Would they ever return to get Simeon? Or would they just go on their way? Look at how Joseph's severity began to prick the conscience of the brothers. Verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you to, not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and he spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Friends, the way Joseph treated his brothers awakened their conscience in a way that his cries in the pit and their father's grief never seemed to do. The brothers interpreted the way that they were being treated in Egypt to be a reckoning with God for selling their brother into slavery in Egypt. They saw what was happening to them as the hand of God's judgment against them. Friends, I think this is a hopeful admission at this point in the story. Despite all these guys' wickedness that we've just recounted, 
They still believed in God, right? They still believed in a moral universe in which they were held to account. They realized that they were reaping what they had sowed and they admitted their guilt. After 22 years, we finally see them admitting that what they did was wrong and that they deserve God's judgment. Friends, isn't this where repentance starts in your and my life? It's by changing our minds about our sin. Whereas once you treated your sin flippantly, whereas once your conscience was calloused and, and hard, now you treat it earnestly as an offense against God and others. You're grieved by it. True repentance always, always begins there. Until you see your sin accurately, until you call it what it is, you're not ready to receive God's love in the gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It makes no sense, does it, from a human perspective. The world tells you, hey, don't, don't admit your mistakes, right? Keep the good front. Make yourself look as good as possible in front of others. God says, be broken and mourn, and then you can know my love. It's a severe mercy, isn't it? To be brought face to face with our own sin. It's not fun, but it's where God's grace is found. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the question is whether these brothers' grief is godly grief or worldly grief, to use the language of Paul that we just read. Do these brothers merely fear the consequences of their actions or, or are they truly grieved by their sin? Has their heart changed? That's what Joseph is trying to discern through the rest of the tests he put his brothers through. Well, in verses 25 and following, Joseph gives covert orders to uh, his steward, to his, his employees, for the brothers to be well supplied for their trip home, including that the money that they bought the grain with be put back into their travel sack. And on the way back, one of them discovered the money in his sack. And look at the response in verse 28. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another and saying, what is this that God has done to us? In a sense, Joseph was displaying kindness to his brothers. He was giving them money back. But they felt the hand of God weighing down on them. If they tried to return to Egypt, even with Benjamin, they would surely be in prison, not as spies, but as thieves. And of course, this is still part of Joseph's severe test. Years before, they sold him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver, right? Now he wants to see if they're going to take the money and run or if they're honest men. In verses 29 to 34, they get home. They recount the story to Jacob. Each man discovers money back in his sack. Their fear multiplies. And look at verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Man, it's clear, isn't it, that, jo that Jacob lays the blame for Joseph's death at his brother's feet. And now he thinks Simeon's as good as dead and he blames them also. So he just refuses. No way you're taking Benjamin. Even though that's the very condition for Simeon to be released. He said, no, 
Reuben steps forward as the firstborn to try to influence the situation. Look at verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Now, that plan seems noble, but how utterly stupid, right? I mean, he's essentially saying, I will have my two sons killed if I fail you. So let me take care of your son. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Why would Jacob want to entrust Benjamin to a son like that? He would hear nothing of it. It's a sad commentary, I think, for Reuben. It's a sad commentary for Jacob. He is content to let Simeon languish in prison in order to protect his favorite son. Now, friends, hang with me. I know there's a lot of content to this story that we're going to get to. But I think all of these details that we're looking at and moving through rapidly contribute toward, toward our understanding of what the Lord is up to here. Look at verse 40, uh, chapter 43, verse 1. Chapter 43, 1, it's repeated. Now the famine was severe in the land. I think it's getting worse. The severity of the hand of the Lord is still upon this family, and they ran out of food again. So once again, Jacob instructs his sons, go to Egypt, buy food. And in this time, it's not Reuben who steps forward rashly, it's Judah. He persuasively just lays out the facts before Jacob. He said, listen, essentially, there, Dad, there's no possibility of us purchasing food unless Benjamin goes with us. That was the condition. Look at verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Think about the last time we saw Judah. Chapter 38, it's the last time we saw him in action. He had been publicly humiliated, exposed by the scheme of Tamar. He seemed to have repented of his, of his unrighteousness to her. And now the next time he appears is right here. He is wise. He's noble. He's persuasive. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. Now that word pledge should ring a bell, friends. Do you remember what Tamar did? Tamar took Judah's identification items. Remember that? As a what? as a pledge for his payment. There's a, there's, a, there's a tie in there in the language that Moses uses. Friends, those symbols, those items symbolize Judah's dishonesty, his lack of integrity, right? Why in the world should Jacob take him seriously now that he's pledging himself? I think Judah has changed. He's changed. He was a different man. Reuben offered his sons to try to persuade his dad. Judah simply pledged his own integrity. And Jacob said, all right, take him down. That was enough. In verses 11 to 14, we see them packing gifts in order to curry the favor of the Egyptian governor. And then in verse 14, Jacob prays for the mercy of God over his family. And of course, we know that God is going to answer this in a way beyond Jacob's wildest imaginations. Verse 15. Verse 15, so the men took this present. They took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and they went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house. 
and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. <laughs> so, so Joseph invites his brothers to his very house and his brothers think it's a setup. I don't know if they've watched too many gangster movies. I don't know what's going on here, but they, they clearly think they're being set up. It's a hit job. Listen, they've run this play in the playbook before. Remember, they buttered up Hamor and Shechem, and then they wiped them out while they were casually laying on their beds recovering from surgery. Remember that? They know this play. And so without even being prompted, they try to explain their, their innocence to Joseph's steward. And look at the response of the steward in verse 23. Verse 23, he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon where they heard that he should eat bread there. Oh, friends, this is astonishing. Instead of sure judgment, Joseph's steward spoke a word of peace. And then the steward told him, hey, the money, it's from the Lord. It's from your God. And then he released Simeon. And then he showed them lavish hospitality. Oh, think about this. The brothers feared death, but now they're invited into the banquet hall to feast in the presence of greatness. My friends, I think this is a picture of the gospel, isn't it? It's a picture for what God has done for us in the gospel. We've seen how this works in our own lives. In an instant, we're declared righteous and reconciled, peace to us, spoken, and then welcome into his presence. So we see this, the severity of the Lord, but now we see this alternating kindness. All of it is leading the brothers toward repentance. Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. Moving quickly again. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. There it is, second time. They bowed down to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger, youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face and he came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves. And the, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Listen, at this point, I don't know how Joseph is keeping up this masquerade, right? His heart is clearly drawn in love toward Benjamin, and yet he needs to test his brothers further. Notice what he does in verse 33. This is so interesting. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Well, I guess so. How does this guy know how to line us up in birth order, right? It's crazy. 
But notice what Joseph does. He doesn't just, he doesn't just line them up and he doesn't honor the firstborn as would be expected. What does he do? Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. <laughs> now Joseph is showing Benjamin favoritism. He's seeking to recreate the scenario that landed him in the pit at Dothan. How are the brothers going to react? But they passed the test with flying colors and they drank and they were merry with him. No sense of jealousy. Friends, in many ways, Joseph is a picture of a sovereign God to his brothers, isn't he? He has the privileged knowledge that, that they don't have. He sets up events in order to try to achieve certain outcomes and he's alternatingly severe with them and then astonishingly kind to them and generous. The brothers, they only see the, the hard veneer, at least at first. They couldn't see his emotions. They didn't know what he was doing when he went for the Kleenex in the back. They didn't know. They didn't know that the Egyptian vizier's heart yearned for them in love. They only knew his severity, but behind it was a heart of tenderness. Friends, how often is this our, our case in our approach to the Lord? Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you blame God for certain things in your life. Maybe you're irritated that the Lord would withhold from you certain things that you desire. Maybe the circumstances of your life have even caused you to question whether there is a God in the first place. Friend, it may seem that God's grace, His goodness is hidden from your view. Perhaps you can't see it because you're not looking. God lets you live in his world and breathe air and provides food for you to eat and clothes for you to wear and a, and a roof over your head. Jesus said it this way. He makes his son to, to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's God's common grace freely bestowed to all humanity. And not only that, not only that grace to you, friend, he's been patient with you. He's not treated you as your sins deserve. He's lavished all these things on you despite your rebellion against him. And it's this very kindness, this very kindness that Paul says is meant to lead you toward repentance, to recognize your need of him, to lay down your pride and turn from your sin and worship him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here at the beginning of chapter 44, Joseph devised one last test to expose the character of his brothers. He instructed his steward to hide his royal cup in Benjamin's sack. So the dawn broke, his brothers head back to Canaan. And Joseph, of course, sent the steward after them and to stage this, this confrontation about who had taken the cup. The brothers are so sure of each other's innocence that they deny the theft outright and they basically invoke the death penalty on anyone found with the cup. The steward's like, whoa, 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 we'll soften that to slavery, okay? <laughs> we'll soften that to servitude. Look at verse 12. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Friends, I think even the brother's corporate grief here is a sign of change. When they betrayed Joseph, 
Only Jacob tore his clothes. But now that Benjamin is found with the cup, all of them tear their clothes in grief. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, third fulfillment of his dreams. Their life, and especially Benjamin's life, is in the vizier of Egypt's hand. He is the master of their fate. As far as they know, Benjamin's headed for a life of slavery. So here's the ultimate recreation of Dothan, isn't it? And the betrayal of Joseph. How would these brothers treat their brother Benjamin now, the favorite son of the father? Think about it. In this moment, friends, they would not have had to mug Benjamin like they mugged Joseph. They would not have had to strip him of his clothes like they did Joseph and throw him into the pit. All they would have had to have done is to remain quiet and let judgment fall. But that's not what happens. Out to the forefront steps Judah. Clearly now the leader of the brothers. Judah, formerly the dishonest wretch. Judah, the one who had initiated the plan in Dothan to sell Joseph into slavery. Now he steps forward to intercede for Benjamin. Look at verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also in whose hand the cup has been found. Wait a second. Wait a second. The brothers are innocent in this case. Benjamin had been framed for stealing the cup, but Judah here says the Lord has found out our guilt. Oh, friend, he is a deeply humble and changed man. As one commentator put it so helpfully, Judah, knowing that he and the brothers have never answered for a sin they did commit, leads the brothers in accepting guilt for a crime they never committed. And the irony is that Judah is unknowingly admitting his guilt before the one that he had betrayed. In verse 17, Joseph raises the stakes. He turns the screws again. And he, says, he says, no, no, no. Benjamin has to stay. The rest of you go free. It's another time for they could have abandoned Benjamin. Will they turn their back on him now? Well, shockingly, no. Up steps Judah again. And this time he delivers a humble and a heartfelt speech on behalf of Benjamin. It's one of the longest speeches in the book of Genesis. It takes up 16 verses. Just think about this, friend. Think about the contrast. At Dothan, Judah was opportunistic. He sought to destroy his brother. He was callous. And now in Egypt, before that very same brother that he sought to destroy, he delivers these words of mercy. Whereas before his actions demonstrated this, this shocking disregard for his father, now in this speech, he mentions his father to Joseph 14 times in explaining what losing Benjamin would do to Jacob. That's not all though. Not only does Judah intercede for Benjamin, he offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. Look at verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Friends, this man has changed beyond recognition. At Dothan, he sold Joseph into slavery. Now before Joseph, Judah offers to become a slave in place 
of Benjamin. He's the first person in all the Bible to offer his life in behalf of another. No wonder in chapter 49, Jacob says that Judah is the king. He's the lion. He is the one from whom the king shall rise. This is what a true king does. He doesn't lord over people and domineering authority. He humbly serves people and gives his life for them. Friends, this is why our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is called the lion from the tribe of Judah. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not set himself free while allowing his people to suffer. Rather, he suffered in order to set his people free. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Friends, God's severe kindness had led Joseph and his brothers to repentance. These are not the same men as they were before. These, these men are now fit to become the heads of the tribes of Israel. Not because of their superior character. They were scumbags. But by grace alone, God had led them in his severe mercy to repent. He had changed them. There is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Friends, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. So turn from your sin to Jesus. Second main point today, much, much shorter. Gracious sovereignty leads to forgiveness. Severe kindness leads to repentance. Gracious sovereignty leads to forgiveness. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Here's the climax. Here it all is. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. That's some loud weeping. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Yeah, I guess so. I guess they were. I mean, can you even imagine the jaws hit the ground, right? It's like they're seeing a ghost. He's back from the dead. In many ways he was. Again, Joseph had that power and the authority to get back at them however he wanted to. Instead, what does he say in verse four? What does he say? What's the, what's the words out of his mouth? Come near. Come near, bring it in, guys. Group hug. He invites them to come near with words of affection. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, an advisor to Pharaoh, and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. How? How in the world 
Could Joseph muster the compassion to forgive those who betrayed him and even to seek to assuage, to, to be a balm to their emotional distress? Well, he lets us know. It's his unwavering confidence in the sovereignty of God. Friends, Joseph's circumstances did not dictate his theology. Rather, Joseph applied his theology to his circumstances. He told his brothers, you sold me, God sent me. You sold me, God sent me. All of it is under his control, even your sinful actions. Friends, Joseph is not here excusing his brother's sin, but rather he's acknowledging that his brother's wickedness, for which they were fully responsible, was underneath the control of the Almighty. They sold him, God sent him. Friends, do you believe in this God? I'm serious, not just theoretically. In your heart of hearts, is this the God that you believe in? Do you understand his sovereignty to be found not only in the obvious blessing, but in the most evil and disastrous circumstances imaginable? He's there. He's sovereign. How might this understanding of God intersect with your life this morning? How might the unshakable sovereignty of God affect the way that you treat those who have wronged you? How might it cause you to view the staggeringly painful events of your life? Joseph understood 20 year, 22 years of estrangement to be under the gracious government of a sovereign Lord. Not merely so that he could save life generically in Egypt, but what does he say? So that he could save what he calls in verse 7, a remnant. He's referring to the promises of God made to Abraham and confirmed to Isaac and his dad, Jacob, that Abraham's offspring would bless the nations. I'm here to save that remnant. He's referring to the outworking of the great promise of God in the Garden of Eden, that the offspring of woman would gain victory over the serpent and bring found, uh, salvation to the world. Friend, Joseph understood God's plan to be just that, a plan meticulously worked out in his pain. God's plan, his pain. So much that he can say, it was not you who sent me here. It was God. For years, Joseph held on to this truth, even when there was no evidence of that truth. Friend, I don't know. Are you, are you here this morning and you're in bondage to bitterness? For years, you've held a grudge for months, you've been a victim of your circumstances. Friends, you want to know how to rise above your circumstances? Place your faith in the unshakable sovereignty of a gracious God. Knowing that his purposes for you are always good. They're filled to the brim with his grace, even when you can't see it. You place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly accepted the cup that the Father gave him in the garden, who prayed, not as I will, but as you will, the cup that the Father had given him, placed his faith in the sovereignty of, of his Father. My heart resonated with Liam Gallagher's words that I read this week in relation to this. It's the most wonderful relief to be knocked off our little throne and to yield to the sovereignty of the one who has the right to rule. 
What a wonderful relief. Friend, it's God's gracious sovereignty that undergirded Joseph's forgiveness. And it ought to inform the lens. It ought to be the lens through which we look at our suffering and our hurt and our pain as well. We have a sovereign and gracious God. Friends, in closing, notice notice what type of forgiveness it was that Joseph offered his brothers. (laughs) He doesn't offer them begrudging forgiveness. No, he opened his heart to them again. It wasn't stingy forgiveness. No, he invited them down to Egypt and he gave them the most fertile land there was, the land of Goshen. It was lavish forgiveness. It was full and it was free. Look at verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. That's lame. Just talked with them, that's it. No, I think this is a callback. This is a Moses callback to chapter 37. Remember, things were so bad. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they could not even what? Speak to him peaceably, have a civil conversation. And now they talk. And probably for hours into the night, rehearsing their lives. They were fully reconciled. Beloved, I can't help but see in Joseph reflected the love and the mercy of our God in Christ. You know, forgiveness cost Joseph an awful lot. It cost him years of his life. Forgiveness cost Joseph languishing as a slave and as a prisoner. But the forgiveness of the Son of God cost him his very life. The forgiveness that God extends to us is not an an arbitrary just covering of our sin. God doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug of eternity, but rather he extends forgiveness because the penalty for our sins was borne fully by Jesus Christ, his son on the cross. It's just this wonder of grace that a risen Savior justifies us fully before the Father. That he stood in our place to bear our guilt. And now he stands in our place to be our righteousness. He intercedes for us even now to ensure that we benefit, that we get all that he died to obtain for us. He intercedes for us even now. Think about how Genesis began. In a garden, perfect relationship with God and with each other. Then sin enters and splinters those relationships. And within a generation, there's fratricide in chapter four. Cain kills Abel. But at the end of Genesis, there's not fratricide, there's forgiveness. At the beginning is a family torn apart by murder. And at the end is a family reconciled by God's grace. The story reminds us that the answer to the the greatest problem in humanity The problem of human wickedness, the answer to that isn't trying harder. It's not self-help. It's not even good works. The answer is forgiveness. The answer is the grace of God reconciling people to himself and then reconciling us to each other. So that now the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, we're the community of the reconciled. That's what we are reconciled to God, reconciled to each other. We are the new family of God. We are called by him now to extend freely 
that grace and that mercy to others to forgive as we have been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your word. We thank you for what we've seen in these, these, these verses, these chapters even, of the story of Joseph reconciled to his brothers. Father, I pray that you might cause us to submit ourselves to even your severe providence in our lives and the kindnesses with which you draw us to repentance. Father, I pray that if there's any among us who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, who still live in their sins and stand this morning rightly, justly condemned before you, oh, Father, I pray that their consciences might be awakened by your grace today. Father, they would feel deeply their need of you that they would give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and trusting themselves to him and everything that he has done for them and through the gospel. But then, Lord, for the rest of us, we ask, Father, that you would cause us to bow underneath your gracious sovereignty in our life. Father, submitting to you and your providence is by nature a humbling endeavor. Oh, Father, but it is for our good. And Father, cause that very humility with which we submit ourselves to you and, and bow the knee to you as our king, then to cause us to be ready to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. To be able to look at our circumstances and say, you hurt me, but God's in control. This was hard but my God reigns. So that we not only submit our hearts to you, but in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, we worship you as the sovereign and good God, just like Joseph did, just like our Lord Jesus did, who went to the cross for us. We thank you for all of this. We pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen.